It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today our guest is a rather interesting, diverse, and highly talented man who's a music producer, a composer, an arranger, a musician, an educator, and more. His name is Jason Goldman. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Alan. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So let me cut right to the chase, if you don't mind, and let me ask you, how does someone from the East Coast, who now lives on the West Coast, has an impressive list of credentials and accomplishments in the world of music and jazz, and is not a rapper, but has become known in the business as Spicy G? <laughs> uh, well, my, my <laughs> funny enough, my roommate in college is a really big, actually, it turns out to be a really big producer. His name's J.R. Rodham, and he's bit really big in the world of pop and, uh, and R&B. And when we were in college, uh, I remember this my freshman year, after the first couple of days, you know, everyone was getting nicknames, and he, uh, he felt that it was very spicy. So uh, he ended up calling me Spicy G, and that name stuck. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny, because half the people don't even know my real name. They just call me Spicy, believe it or not. Well, actually, that, that's quite amazing. So it has nothing to do with your culinary skills. has nothing to do with my culinary skills. I don't really uh, even care for that much spice, to be quite honest with you, uh, in my food. But that's, that's, what I, uh, that's what a lot of people know me as. So. Well, that's great that, that you have this moniker, if you will, that people yeah. know you by. And within the business, uh, I'm sure the name Spicy G means a lot. It's, I mean, it's definitely interesting, especially in the world that I'm in. As as you probably know, there's not too many people in the jazz world with nicknames. So that question does pop up quite often. Say, what is spicy? Why are you? I remember when I was, we were putting uh, the album credits to one of uh, Buble's albums. He was like, are you really going to put spicy G? And I was like, yeah. I said, that's what a lot of people know me as. So uh, he gave me a hard time about it, but it's there. Great. Well, I'm going to, talk uh, a little bit about uh, certainly your career, some of your background, uh, your music personally, as well as uh, your new release, which is Hypnotized, and we'll get into all that in a little bit. But let me uh, first ask you, you grew up in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut, and you were inspired by your father, who was a, an R&B saxophonist. What was the inspiration there, or what did that lead to for you? Yeah, my dad... Um he he actually when i was growing up he he didn't really play much he, he was a mechanic and he was really good with his hands uh but he would always like every year he would take his horn out like maybe a couple times a year and then play a sax riff matter of fact it ends up it's it's the sax riff to night train um and he would always play that sax riff every time he took it out but i remember just loving listening to the saxophone you know a lot of times around the house they would have my parents would have like barry manilow playing or some sort of pop music playing but when he would take the sax out, I was always like, wow, I love the sound of that. And at some point, you know, when, when I was moving up and getting ready to move into middle school, we got to, we were able to choose an instrument. So, of course, I ch had to choose the saxophone. Well, it's only appropriate that you should. And yeah. by the way, uh, your music on the saxophone is fantastic, even though a lot of your endeavors of late uh, or more contemporary years have been devoted more to the business side of uh, the music world. But I, I especially love the definitive standard 
and that oh, was 2001. And my favorite off of that, uh, and I think it's a true reflection of your saxophone talent, uh, is the Renovation Blues. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, that one was on the Wave Street Sessions. Um, and that was a blues we did. Um, that was a live recording. I think actually it was in 2005. And it was it was uh, this, this jazz radio personality out here, Leroy Downs, uh, was starting this new show up uh, in the Monterey area in California. And so he asked if I wanted to, to do a live show. So we made a, a, a record out of it. And we ended up playing that, that, that kind of funky little blues, the Renovation Blues. It's uh, really a great piece of music. And obviously, after you picked up the saxophone uh, in your younger years, you continued with it. Then you moved on to Berklee College. Yeah, Berklee College of Music. You know, I, I only applied, and this is something that I don't <laughs> recommend for most students, but I only applied to one college. Uh, I always knew I wanted to be a musician because that's just what I did. And I had already gotten a scholarship before I even thought about going to, to college. So I was like, oh, I got a scholarship already. I'm just going to go to Berkeley College of Music, realizing that potentially I could, you know, they didn't have to let me in, but luckily they did let me in. And I did a five-year dual major degree in jazz composition and film scoring there. What turned you on to Berkeley? Did you have a counselor that pushed you in that direction or was there somebody that uh, you knew that went to the school? In my high school, we actually had a very good music program. It wasn't a jazz-based music program. This is Norwalk High School. But the director, Jeff Smith, was a just really loved music and especially marching band. Um, so I did a lot of marching band music. And we, the, funny enough, the jazz band that was there was they had one jazz band and all the great players, of course, were in the jazz band. So what, you know, as a freshman, I tried out and I ended up making it into the jazz band, which was like at the time almost unheard of. So I ended up playing tenor saxophone in that band. And every year we would go to the Berkeley College of Music. They had a high school jazz festival. So every year for four years, I was going up there and, you know, I would play and we, we actually won the competition a couple of times, but I would get to tour the college and meet some of the professors. And it was just like one of those places where it was like, well, this is where I'm, I'm meant to be, I guess. So that's where I end up going. Well, there's so many people that I've uh, come across in the business that actually were in either marching bands and drum and bugle corps. In fact, just this past weekend, it was Oscar Peterson's birthday, and he was actually a drummer in a drum and bugle corps. Is there something about that sort of experience that lends itself to your development? I think so. I mean, you know, marching band is not the, as we all know, not the the best music making experience per se, you know, because a lot of times you're walking and marching around and the, the mouth, you know, if you play like a horn, the mouthpiece is bouncing around on your mouth. You're not, intonation is always crazy depending on the temperature and humidity, but it does, you, you are listening to the drums a lot and you're, and you're having to keep in time and, you know, in step. And I think that does certainly allow you to really feel time constantly. So you're constantly thinking about steady time. So I think that, that that did help in the end. But now that I'm now that I think about it, I mean I really do believe that did help to steady the time, you know. Right. And of course time obviously as you know is a very important element of music and and there's so much variation on that theme as well. So it's quite interesting that it gives you that firm grasp or hold of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So after Berkeley, you also went to uh, the University of Southern California and achieved a master's degree. How long after Berkeley was that? 
Sure. So I ended up, uh, after I finished my dual major degree, I ended up packing up my car and I had made the finals for this uh, competition the, that the television Academy of Television Arts and Sciences had in film composing. And I didn't get the position. They had like one internship for this position, but I was the runner up. So Jonathan Wolf called me up, the guy who did the theme to Seinfeld and, and Will and Grace. And he said, look, you know, I know you didn't make the, um, the, you didn't get the internship. He's like, but it was literally neck and neck and they made us pick someone. He's like, so if you'd like to come out here, I'll give you the same experience that, that I'm giving the intern. So I literally, I just finished graduating and I just packed my car up and a week later just moved out to California. So, and then when I came out here, I was trying to meet as many film composers as possible. But at the time I started to become a little uh, disenchanted with the film industry at the time because I was really like into live music, writing for orchestra or big bands and things of that nature. And at that time, in the, the late 90s, there was really a lot of synth stuff kind of happening and I really wasn't into it. So I kind of fell out of love with, with that at that time. And so I decided to go back to uh, do my master's and a friend of mine at USC was like, hey, you should apply for the master's program at USC. And so uh, I ended up doing that. And when I applied there, a position had opened up at what's the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz, which is uh, one of the, the strongest um, performance programs. And they only take like five or six people. And I applied and I got the job or, or the position, which was on the campus of USC. So I did both programs concurrently. So you didn't enter one of the Monk Institute's competitions then. You chose a field of study instead. So the way the Monk Institute works, um, it worked at the time was that they had the Monk competition, which which most people know as this you know competition, they pick the instrument and then everyone tries out and it's the top three. They also have what to me is the most important program, which is their college program in which they take five to eight students and you study uh, for two years with some of the greats. So I toured a bit with Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, Terrence Blanchard. They would come in all the time and we would do, um, we would play together. They would give us master classes and then we would go do like a mini tour with them. And I got to play with a lot of great jazz musicians, Roy Haynes, Bobby Watson, Jimmy Heath. I mean, the list kind of goes on Clark Terry. So it was, it was a really fortunate experience. So after the Monk Institute, take us through the chronology, because where does your professional uh, music career kick off or, or take its path versus that of the educator, which you became at USC? Well, as soon as I finished my master's at USC and, my, and the Monk Institute, it happened kind of all at once. Uh, I had become very friendly with uh, Shelley Berg, who at the time was the chair of the jazz program at, at USC. He's now the dean at the Frost School of Music in Miami. And he had taken a liking to me. And uh, he said after, you know, when I just finished, he was like, hey, do you want to you teach uh, an ensemble and some private students? So of course I was like, sure, because, uh, you know, I didn't have a plan. That was, that was always the thing I, I think that I should have obviously had. I've, I always feel like I was, I was in great places and at the right places at the right time. And this is, again, was that other opportunity where I was at the right place, right time. And Shelly uh, had asked if I wanted to join the faculty. And so I said, sure. And at the time, right when I took that job, there was an audition for um, Michael Buble was putting together his first band. And they had called Berkeley College of Music. They had called USC. They called the Monk Institute because they were looking for a, a young band to play with Michael. And all three luckily had um, recommended that I take the audition. So I ended up taking the audition 
for David Foster and Michael Bublé, and uh, that's how I joined the band. And of course, that obviously, talk about right place, right time, it developed a relationship with uh, Michael Bublé to where you began not only playing for him, but then doing arrangements, and it just went on from there to award-winning achievements. Yeah, I, I, I was telling someone the other day, a lot of the times the way that these opportunities happen for me is I end up having to create the opportunities. You know, a lot of musicians think that, you, you know, you wait, you get better at your instrument and the phone will ring. And that's true for, for some, some of it, but a lot of it is also when you see kind of an opening of an opportunity, you take it. So when I made the band, what would happen, it was four horns and rhythm section, just piano, bass, drums, guitar, and then Michael. And our first week's worth of gigs was going to be at this place here in Hollywood. It's, it no longer exists, but it was Michael Feinstein's place called the Cinegrill over at the old Roosevelt Hotel. You know, the Warner Brothers put us together in the hotel and we had, it was a week's worth of rehearsal and then we were going to do a week's worth of shows. And this was Michael's first performances since making the first album. So they ended up handing us the charts, you know, the four horns for the, the album. And as, as we all know, if you've listened to those albums, like those are big band and strings, like it's a lot of musicians to, and there's only four horns. So they gave us, they gave me the, I was the only sax player. They gave me the lead alto part. There was one trombone player they gave him the lead trombone part and then there was two trumpets and we had first and second trumpet the only issue is a lot of these charts each lead player is playing the same note so what happened was there wasn't much harmony happening so you know david was like what Some, something's weird this doesn't sound right in the horns and i remember just saying well that's because you know we all have the lead parts with the exception of the second trumpet player i said so there's not really like a lot of harmony and i said if you want i can I could just arrange the horn parts. He's like, oh, I don't think we're going to have enough time for that. And I was like, no, I was like, I could probably do it by tomorrow. And he's like, I, I just don't think we're going to have enough time. And then so what I ended up doing is going home that night, of course, and writing the arrangement to come fly with me, just reorchestrating it. And then the next day we came in and we played it. And he's like, wow, that sounds really good. He's like, what was different? I said, well, I just arranged it for the horns. And now you're hearing all the harmony. And he's like, Okay. He's like, well, can you do the rest of the songs? I said, okay, well, when do you need him? He's like, in the next day or two. So I had to do, <laughs> had to do like, uh, you know, almost a dozen charts in a couple of days. And of course, I took the opportunity and didn't get paid great. But it was, you know, at that time, it was this whole brand new thing. And that's how I ended up getting the opportunity. And that was the first experience and time they heard me uh, writing, my writing ability. Now, along with that, in that experience, is this also where you began to establish your cred, if you will, as a producer? It actually wasn't. I didn't start building my production credit until probably about 10 years ago. I'd say like, what is that? 2010 is when I really started. So I was on the road with Buble for about a year, a little over a year. And I had also just gotten engaged and a lot of things all came in at once. And we started touring to the point where it was like, we'd be out on the road for a month, month and a half at a time. And I was trying to juggle my teaching job at USC touring with Buble and my, you know, I was engaged, like I, I just mentioned. So I had to make a decision and Michael called me. He's like, look, he's like, I love you and I love your playing. He's like, but I need someone on the road full time. He's like, he's like, I want you to stay in the band, but I totally understand if you can't, but I need someone full time. So it was a tough decision, but I ended up saying, well, I'm just going to stay. I'm going to do my teaching job and create more of a family life here for me because I had already gotten in the door with some of the writing because along that first year, year and a half, I had done a couple of other, other arrangements that were my own arrangements as opposed to me just orchestrating that he liked a lot. So I was like, well, hopefully he'll know that I've done all these arrangements for him and that he'll like that and we'll just keep the relationship going. 
So over the years, I had written some arrangements for him, things like uh, Let It Snow or Smile or some of those pieces of music. And then from there, we started to slowly lose contact. You know, obviously, you could see the more time you're out of the band. I mean, we would talk every year. And then it wasn't till maybe six years ago that Alan uh, Chang, the direct, the music director for Buble, and the guy who wrote all of his hit songs, or co-wrote all the hit songs, said, hey, do you want to, I know you've been working on your production. Do you want to get together and, and write some songs? And that, that's how it happened. Only, only about five, six years ago when I started writing for Buble. Was that the seminal moment then uh, where you began to make that transition away from the musician to the arranger, the composer, the, the producer? Yeah. You know, along the way, I've been, or it takes years to really craft uh, today's modern producer. You know, it's, it's a bit different than like the David Fosters and Quincy Jones, where you're kind of overseeing a project. Today's producer and modern producer, especially in the pop and hip hop worlds, you know, I had to learn how to work all of the computer software. I had to learn how to tune vocals and record and do all of these different facets of recording that it took me a while. And, it, and during that whole process, I was... I was still playing, of course, and teaching jazz. So I was, I'm, and I still play constantly today with, with the students in class. I mean, obviously barring our, the COVID incident, but I'm still playing all the time and I play on recordings a lot. And yeah, I ended up having to switch a, a little bit more and take some of my time away from just playing jazz to doing all these other things in order to start developing more of a producing career than just a playing career. So it sounds like you're one of those people I should ask, when do you ever sleep? Uh, and it, it, it's, I say that with respect and somewhat of a taste of humor that everything that you've been doing requires so much time and it's extremely, I would think, time consuming for you. It is time intensive, definitely. But I put in a lot of time and, and luckily my wife was patient enough with me where um, when I st first started producing, I set up uh, like a little office. We had uh, we had like a back house, so I set up like a little office because we were renting out the back house, and there was like one little room that was separate from the rest of the house. So I set up this tiny little room, and during the day I would do teaching and clinics and things. Then I would spend time with with my wife in the evening, and then when, as soon as she would go to bed, I would go to the back room and just work on producing and writing starting at like nine or 10 at night till two or three in the morning just to get my craft kind of happening. So I wouldn't, I would only sleep usually about six hours, maybe a night, maybe at best sometimes. <laughs> See, but there's so much that goes into it. Just like in terms of what you do in the music industry, there's a lot more to it than a six, seven, eight minute song how much work goes into that or producing an album sometimes it takes a year or two yeah well that's definitely true over the years i've really i've done a lot of arranging that that has always been my my main thing i think that has really propelled me with a lot of people because there are just not very many arrangers left anymore that's not to say that there aren't people that arrange music because there are but is in particular in this genre, this American songbook genre, I mean, there used to be so many unbelievable arrangers, you know, Quincy Jones, Nelson Riddle, Neil Hefty, like all these these cats. And now there's really only a handful left and I'm, I happen to be one of them. So that's it's been kind of this little niche market that's kind of helped me. And I've been able to do more and more writing over the years. And that has just kept propelling me to the point where I get I'm pretty good where I can do a big band chart in a day if I need to you know, or I can produce a song in a day if, if I need to, at least to get it to sound 
in a decent place before I really dive in and get all the nuts and bolts and, you know, dot my I's and cross my T's. But I can do things fairly quickly at a high level now only because I've, I've kind of been forced to, you know, over the years when you write for people, first they call you because they're like, oh, they, 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 they heard something you did and they think it's great. And then they're like, well, this, this person backed out of this job. Can you do this? So it was always like, oh, I need to do this quickly. You know, one of my, the, the main song that I first did for Buble was this Let It Snow arrangement. And how that happened was we were in the studio, I remember, and I was just there hanging out with David and Michael and they were working on Let It Snow. And, I, you know, they're like, oh, they kind of had a, mo- a mock-up for what they wanted the arrangement to be. And they're like, okay, well, they was like, I'll get X big composer or arranger to do the the chart. And I just said, well, you know, I can I can do the arrangement. And David was like, I, I got I got big guys that can do that. I, you know, I said, well, trust me, I can do it. He's like, well, he's like, I'm I'm not gonna hold my breath for it. So of course that night I went home and I did the the big bad I stayed up all night, of course. And I did the chart and I brought it in the next day and and I didn't say anything to him yet. I just waited till we started talking about it again. And I just told him, I said, well, actually, I have the chart done. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I finished it last night. And he said, with plenty of expletives, you know, get out of here. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm serious. And then I just pulled it out of my bag. And he said, okay, let's 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 get a session together. This will be the opening for Rockefeller Center one, for the Christmas tree lighting. And that was how it all happened was, again, me just kind of just doing things. Again, they, they didn't tell me to do it. They didn't ask me to do it. I have no idea that they were going to pay me obviously they did after the fact but they, there was no pl- intention on paying me to do it i just did it you've had such a, a rich history and career and many influences inspirations and so on uh, through your stage of development to a point where now you're producing a new project and it's called hypnotized so can we talk a little bit about that in terms of what all of this background and career and history and experience of yours has led to Hypnotized? Sure. This uh, short little EP is a culmination of everything that I've done in music thus far. I wanted to take an album, and I call it an album, I mean, it's a five-song EP, and I was like, okay, let me see if I can get my favorite type of music, American Songbook, with singers that I think are completely authentic to the music. And I want to see if I can record a big band orchestra in my little studio in here without recording a full big band and, and you know, in a studio because it, you know, these, these records cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, but I wanted to make it all on my own, record all the sax parts, do everything in my little studio. And then on top of it, add my modern pop production techniques, which I do for hip hop artists and pop artists and add all of that into one project. And that's what Hypnotize was about. And you know, I came up with that idea because I wrote the theme song or the title song with one of the singers on there, Addie Hamilton, who's a great, great writer and great singer. And we wrote it together and I was like, okay, well maybe I'll, maybe I should have a theme to this little project where all the songs are like a kind of an Alice in Wonderlandy kind of effect, a dreamy kind of effect. Can't forget your name, so love. 
And that's that's how I came up with the idea for Hypnotized, uh, and that's how we did it. You know, I'm glad you used the word culminated because it's one thing reading about your background and your history, but then when you start to listen to this particular release, as I've had the opportunity to go through these tracks, you can see all of these little intricacies in there that are a part of a little this, a little bit of that, and, and it all fits in together beautifully. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, everything, I, I, I think I, I wrote in the liner notes that everything had an intent and was purposeful. You know, I was very careful about this project. This five songs, I think they took me three, four months, which is longer than most, most projects will take me, at least nowadays. But I really wanted to get this right. And, you know, I had things in my head that I wanted to get right. And also trying to make a big band and orchestra sound like a real big band and orchestra without having a big band and orchestra in order for it to sound authentic needed a, a lot of time me working and, and programming and, and literally, literally taking a scalpel to every instrument and carving frequencies out and making it sound real. You know, I mean, it took a while to do that. You know, I can see how you've done that, especially uh, when I started looking at some of the videos that you produce uh, in the studio with Spicy G. And I found it fascinating to see how you can build those elements of a, a recording. And you've got one person in the room besides yourself. There was Alex Hahn, and then you also uh, did something with uh, Jordan Vincent. Correct. Uh, and you're adding a little bit of this and that. It's like you were becoming a, an alchemist and creating this wonderful potion and putting this music together. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, it's so, the pop world is very different than the jazz world. And in the pop world, those types of sessions happen all the time where it's a, it's a producer and then either a songwriter or a top liner. And so a lot of times I'll go in, they'll come into the studio and I'll start either playing a beat or I'll play some chords or I'll play a melody. And then we start writing a song uh, together and I'm building these uh, these songs in the computer and I usually have something at least in the, in the pop world like a verse pre and chorus usually within the hour hour and a half so that at least we can get some vocals down and then I start manipulating all that as the session progresses so at the end of like a three four hour writing session we have something that sounds like a fairly professional recording just by the end of, of the session. In bringing you back to Hypnotized, you've got the five tracks on there, as you've stated, but you also perform uh, on the EP as well. I recorded all the sax parts, so it's, it's a five saxophone section, like a, a typical big band section. So I played uh, both alto parts, both tenor parts, and the very sax part. And then um, you'll probably hear there's like a, I think there's like a one sax solo and some fills around on the saxophone. So whatever I was hearing in my head, I just grabbed one of the horns in the back and then just started playing it. <laughs> How did you come up with the selections uh, on the, the tracks, like Pennies from Heaven, Orange Colored Sky? What, what a, uh, boy, talk about uh, history and tradition, uh, witchcraft, sure. uh, and sit right down, write myself a letter. Where did that come from? Sure. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm quite an old soul at heart, and I know those songs extremely well but the intent behind those songs is after we wrote Addie and I wrote Hypnotized I wanted songs that I thought were kind of out there a little bit so Pennies from Heaven seemed very odd for me it's like every time it rains it rains Pennies from Heaven which I was like huh what if you actually saw 
pennies falling from the skies. Orange colored sky. I was walking along, minding my business when out of the orange colored sky, flash, bang, alakazam. Right. And of course, it's about love. But even at the end, it's like out of the orange color, purple hued. Um, I can't remember all the lyrics offhand right now, but it, it kind of has this real strange colors kind of happening. Orange colored sky just seemed like a very odd thing. And then, of course, there's witchcraft, which obviously the, the um the magicalness of that. And then finally, uh, sit right down and write myself a letter. I picked that song because it was my, it's one of my favorite songs when I heard uh, Sarah Vaughn sing that on Live at Mr. Kelly's was fantastic. But I kept thinking to myself, you know, the song is, I'm gonna sit my sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe it came from you. I thought, well, what if she was a little off a little bit? <laughs> you know, what if she's just kind of, she's just pretending that she saw this guy and she's just writing this letter about this guy and it was kind of a strange thing to do. So that all the songs kind of tie together. And of course the, the, the title, uh, title track, Hypnotize, is about uh, a person being drugged with a love potion. So they're all tied together with this kind of weird mystical kind of quality, I guess you can call it. Sure. Well, it makes sense. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How is it that you chose three vocalists to do five tracks? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I could have just chosen one, but when I, anytime I, I do a song, one of the things at least I learned from David Foster and, and, and Michael is the attention to detail about everything. And I just, you know, when, when I started doing a song, I would be like, oh, who would be perfect for this song? Whose voice can I hear on this song? Addie, of course, did Hypnotize because she wrote that with me. And then immediately following that, I was like, okay, I need to do another song with her. So I had her voice in my head when I did sit right down and write myself a letter. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. And then I started writing Pennies from Heaven, and I, I, was, I remember needing a, a little bit lower of an alto voice. And I knew I had this uh, young lady at USC, Olivia Morial, uh, and I was like, well, I wonder what she would sound like. So I had texted her. I said, can you send me just like a voice memo of you singing the first A section to Pennies from Heaven? And she did, and I was like, oh my God, it's fantastic. Let's do the song. Cloud contains pennies from heaven. 
So she came in and we did the song and I said, oh, I have a, at the same time, I had another idea for doing this song, Witchcraft. I said, can, can you just sing that for me? So I played the chords while she was there and she sung it. And I said, okay, I got to do an arrangement on that for her. And then finally, the last vocalist, Aaron Bentlage, was someone that a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, had had uh, referred her to me because I, I started writing this song on Orange Colored Sky, but it was it's definitely different than anyone has done that song before, and I needed someone who was very good at layering vocals, and Aaron Bentlage is very good at harmonizing and layering vocals and. She has a little bit of a different angle in, in terms of how she sings the melody and the phrases. And so I loved it. And I said, oh, we got to I got to see if she'd be willing to do it. And so she came in and I've, technically I've only met Aaron one time. I was walking along, minded my business, went out of the orange colored sky. Studio. We worked that day, like for three hours. She she came in, sung the song. She just nailed it. I mean, it was it was amazing. They are three very diverse and incredibly talented vocalists. Uh, their range, uh, their their command of the music is is, is really quite fascinating. I, I would think everybody should get this EP and and listen to it because it's just spectacular. I appreciate that. You know, I'm. Like I said, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm becoming very, even more detailed as I go along and I hear specific voices, right? I'm, I've already started on my next project and I spent the other night, you know, going through videos and, and recordings of different people that people recommend to me, different vocalists. But I have, you know, I ha there's a specific thing that I'm looking for in, in vocalists and mostly it's how they sing a song and 
can they connect me emotionally with the song? That That is one of the big things for me. And actually, I got that from my wife because, <laughs> funny enough, she, she's just a, a music-aholic, but she's not a musician. But when I... I never really listened to rock and roll growing up. Everything to me was jazz and smooth jazz. And when I met my right wife, she was like all about rock, classic rock. And so I started listening to rock and she would say, you know, I'd show her a song. She's like, ah, I don't really care for that song. I'm like, well, why not? She's like, well, the story's not that great. And I'd be like, what do you mean? She's like, well, the story's not that great. And I was like, well, I didn't even listen to the story. I was just listening to the melody. She's like, no, nah, you got to listen to the, the story. And that was when I first started listening to lyrics intently and then i started working with songwriters and i started developing my own songwriting as well and it took me years before i really understood like man i gotta have a good story most most people aren't musicians i gotta i gotta i want people to be captivated by the story as well oh that that's that's so essential as a part of a vocalist to be the storyteller uh, and when it when it does happen, it, it is amazing. It, it it gives you that emotional connection and an opportunity to just get lost in the song. So it's really fascinating. Yeah, I I, I mean, again, it's one of those things. I, I just it's I went so many years. I mean, decades without thinking about lyrics of songs. Because again, I'm I'm a saxophone player by trade, and I'm thinking melodies and and the groove and rhythm. But I just. At that time, I wasn't thinking of lyrics, and it took me a while to really understand. And that's when I really grew to really appreciate the American Songbook, is once I started focusing on the lyrics and listening to the stories. And then I truly understood how great the music was. You know, I wish I wish we had more time to uh, devote another hour or two to this because it, you are so diverse and have so many things going on in your life. Uh, you also. Uh, uh, work on collaborations with some young artists, uh, and it's not jazz. It's uh, so a lot of it's hip hop, uh, some of it electronic, uh, and so forth. You do the videos uh, in uh, in the studio with Spicy G as well. And let's see, what else? Uh, the the <laughs> list is so long. Licensed to jazz. Uh, yeah. that, that's a licensing company that you're involved in or started. Yeah, we just, uh, my friend uh, Doc Watkins and I, uh, he is a, a, a jazz club owner in San Antonio, Texas, the best jazz, one of the best jazz clubs I've ever been to. And we just decided to, you know, I have so much music and he's got so much music that we're like, well, we should get some of it rather than put it, give it to a, a regular publishing company. We should probably just make a licensing company and license our music ourselves. So Doc and I just decided to start this little venture and we're just getting it off the ground, I think it will um, be officially up and running in the next few days. So, And so lastly, uh, sure. to kind of bring this to a, a culmination here, is if you haven't done enough already, you also wrote a book. Yeah. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've been teaching at USC now for 19 years. So part of my education or pedagogy is that I write. And, you know, I was always worried about writing a book, to be quite honest with you, because, you know, many times people write these. It, this is an improvisation book on how to improvise. And many times people write these books and they can be very overwhelming. And it's very you can't correct mistakes, obviously, when you hear them. So I was very nervous about writing this book and just kind of leaving it out there for people to to read. But then finally, I had some encouragement from Bob Mincer and, and, and Alan Pasqua, uh, my colleagues at USC and jazz greats in their own right. And they're like, look, you gotta, you gotta write something. So finally I said, okay, I'll, I'll write a book. And you know, I've had a lot of great students come out of USC that I've taught 
uh, Alex Han actually being one of them and a, a ton of them. And so I wrote this book and that was, that was about, I think about eight years ago. How can people learn more about you? Uh, you they can go to my website, which is jasongoldmanmusic.com. Matter of fact, it's a newly renovated website, so they can go check that out. All the, the new albums will be is right up there on the front. And that's probably the best place. Or Instagram, Spicy G Music. They can go to Instagram, scroll through, and I post lots of videos all the time and, and music. And sometimes I'll just, if I'm warming up playing, they can see me just warming up a little bit and playing some bebop or something like that. Amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing for all that you've done and the difference that you make uh, in the world of jazz and in the world of music. It, it's, it's nice to get to know you for a little bit and hopefully we can revisit one time in the future and all the best. Absolutely, Alan. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure and uh, take care, be well and stay safe. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz. Featuring multi-platinum selling music producer, songwriter, musician, and composer-arranger, Jason Spicy G. Goldman. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Please join us for our next episode when we will explore the world of Benedetto Guitars, the American makers of archtop jazz guitars. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the app you used to listen to us. We have new podcasts every Wednesday. You may subscribe for free. We are now heard on all top platforms, as well as Facebook and our website, allthatsjazz.net.